heaven is real. Eternal, never-ending joy in the presence of God through Jesus is real. And hell is real. Eternal punishment under God's wrath. It's real. Heaven and hell are real. When you think about eternity, like our lives, maybe at one centimeter, and then eternity takes you to the edge of the Milky Way, and that's just getting started, there's nothing more important than knowing that we are going to heaven, that we're going to be with God in the joy of his presence forever. Nothing more important than that. And Jesus tells us that we can know for sure that that's our destiny. He tells us that. And he tells us what we need to do in order to have that as our certain destiny. And that's what he does in the passage we're going to be studying this morning. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 25. We are returning to our series going through Luke's gospel. We ended around a year ago or so, I forget, but we'd gone through half of it, took a break, did some other things. Now we're back into Luke for a few weeks, then we'll have a Christmas series, and then proceeding in Luke through early 2022. And today's passage is Luke 13, verses 22 through 25, where Jesus tells us what we need to do to be sure that we will be with him, have the joy of his presence in heaven forever. Let's start by reading verses 22 through 24. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? I just pause there for a moment. Think about that question. Lord, are, are those who are going to be saved be just a few? Now, Jesus does not answer their question, as we will see. And he doesn't answer their question because there is something far more important for them to be asking. Not, will those who saved be few, but how do I get saved? More important than telling Jesus how many are few is to tell them how they can be saved. And that's what he does. Again, verse 23, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus is giving us a picture here where salvation is like a house. It's a house which God lives in. We want to be in that house because our greatest joy as human beings, created by God, is to see, behold, worship, trust, love God and his glory in the person of Jesus Christ. So we want to be in that house, this house of salvation. And to get into that house, Jesus says we must enter through a narrow door, the door of trusting Jesus. And in this life, when we enter through that narrow door, then we can be in that house, the house of salvation, now, in this life. We'll be there now, and we'll be there forever in heaven. So this is a house that we can enter into now as we enter through the narrow door of trusting Jesus. But what's puzzling 
about what Jesus says is he says we must strive to enter through the narrow door. Did you catch that? Strive to enter through the narrow door. That's not how we usually talk about salvation, is it? When was the last time you told somebody that to be saved, you need to strive to enter through the narrow door? I doubt any of us has. But that's what Jesus says. So it's true. Which means we have to ask, why must we strive? Strive to enter the narrow door. The Greek word strive, it's the word agonizomai, which means things like make every effort, try very hard, strive. It's a word we use all the time. So Jesus is saying that to enter by the narrow door and be saved, we must make every effort and try very hard. Just let that weigh on you. Now, there's a big danger here. We could easily misunderstand what Jesus is saying if this is the only verse we look at and we don't look at what else he taught and the rest of the scriptures. We could think, wrongly, that we have to work very hard to obey a certain amount to gain certain credits or certain merits before we could be forgiven and welcomed into this house by God. That is not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that we are not saved by our obedience. We are saved by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just remind you of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Look at what Paul writes. For by grace, by God's grace, you have been saved through faith. That's how you're saved. It's through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The grace was a gift of God. Being saved is a gift of God. Even the faith that you have was a gift from God. It's not a result of works, obedience, so that no one may boast. So we're not saved by our obedience. Are we clear on this point? Help me out here, church. This is very important. No one is saved by obeying a certain amount. We are not saved by obedience. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But if we're saved by faith, then why do we need to strive? The reason is because faith is not easy. It's not easy. If you think faith is easy, you, you maybe aren't understanding faith. It's not easy. Remember, we did a series on living by faith. Faith means trusting God's promises. Faith means trusting all that God promises to be for us in Jesus Christ. And while all of God's promises are important to trust, Jesus points out that there are two promises that are especially important to trust for salvation. Saving faith must focus on at least these two promises. And both of these promises are hard to trust. One of the promises is, Jesus' death, only Jesus' death will pay for the guilt of your sin. That's one of the promises. And the second promise is Jesus' presence, only Jesus' presence will satisfy our hearts. Only Jesus' death will pay for the guilt of our sins. Only Jesus' presence will satisfy our hearts. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells us that we must trust those two promises. We're saved by faith. 
but our faith must be in those two promises to be saved. Now, let me show you passages that show that Jesus tells us we must trust those promises and the fact that those promises are hard to trust. Look first at Luke 18, 10 through 14, which talks about the promise that Jesus' death, only Jesus' death will pay for our guilt. Read these verses. Luke 18, 10 through 14. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisees were the religious leaders at the time. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You getting a feel for that prayer? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Pharisee, tax collector, which one entered the narrow door into God's house and was saved from that point on and forever? It was not the Pharisee. It was the tax collector. Because he saw that he was a sinner. He saw his guilt. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He saw that he was a sinner who could never save himself by his works, that he was under God's wrath, and that he needed a Savior. He, he humbled himself, and he saw that, and he trusted God's mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, this was before the cross. Now that we are after the cross, we see, of course, that God's mercy was purchased for him and for anybody who trusts Jesus through Jesus' death on the cross. So this is a picture here of the tax collector trusting that Jesus, only Jesus, can pay for the guilt of my sin. And this passage shows, since it was the tax collector that was saved, we need to be like the tax collector. So we need to see ourselves as guilty before God, and that only Jesus' death pays for our guilt. But there's a problem. Our sin doesn't want to believe that. Our pride does not want to think that. Our pride loves exalting ourselves and thinking that we're better than other people and that, and that God must be really impressed with us and that he, he needs us. And We start leaning towards trusting Jesus' promise that Jesus and only Jesus' death will pay for our guilt. We start leaning towards that, that promise and our sin is saying, no, come back, don't trust that promise which means it's hard to trust that promise. But here's the good news. If we will strive to trust that promise, 
if we will take it seriously, if we will cry out to God and say, help me, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, soften my heart, crush my pride. I know this is true. Help me to believe it. Help me to humble myself, seeing that I am in desperate need of a Savior and that you are the Savior. If we will strive to believe that God will meet us, He will change our hearts. He will give us that faith. He will save us. It will happen. Let me give you an illustration of somebody who did strive to enter through the narrow door and entered into the house, God's house of salvation. It's Ireland where this takes place, 1859. We've talked before about this amazing outpouring of salvation that God brought into Ireland in 1859. Here's another illustration from that time. I've been, I've been reading a book about that. A man had been at a prayer meeting who obviously was not saved, deeply troubled that he was not saved, not trusting Jesus, feeling guilty, struggling, convicted, but not trusting Christ yet. He, he was at this prayer meeting, went home after the prayer meeting, came back the next night to the prayer meeting, changed, completely changed. What had happened? Here's what he says. He'd gone home, and he says, I took my Bible, got down on my knees, and prayed over what I read. You are a great God, and I am a poor sinner. Does that sound more like the Pharisee or more like the tax collector? That'd be the tax collector, right? You are a great God, and I am a poor sinner. I have nothing good to bring to you. Nothing to offer, just sin. But you, Lord Jesus offered yourself as a sacrifice. Present yourself to the Father for me. Lead me to Him and make peace between us by the blood of the cross. He says, and then I felt a movement in my soul and the Savior came. Not, not physically, not literally, but, but he, he felt, he experienced this. The Savior came and took me near, and I found there was peace between my Father and me, and now I am so happy. Don't you love that? He's entered through the narrow door. He's in the house of salvation. He is saved now and forever. He was striving to enter the narrow door, laboring to see that he was guilty before God, asking God for help, trusting in Jesus, and then he felt Jesus drawing him near and experienced peace with God, which filled him with joy. So I want you to ask yourself this question, everyone here. Do you feel in your heart that you have been guilty before God? Do you feel that in your heart? Do you humbly admit that you can't do anything in yourself to save yourself, to make up for your sin? That apart from Jesus, you are lost forever? Do you, do you feel that in your heart? And, and, and are you trusting the promise, this promise, that Jesus' death, only Jesus' death, can pay for your guilt? If that describes your heart, you have entered through the narrow door. You are in God's house of salvation now and forever. You have been saved, and you can know it with 100% certainty. So that's this first promise that I want to help you see, that Jesus says this promise is an essential part of saving faith, trusting that 
Jesus' death, only Jesus' death can pay for the guilt of my sin. And as we strive to trust that, God will enable us to trust that. But now there's a second promise that Jesus says is essential, an essential part of saving faith, if we're going to enter through this narrow door. It's the promise that Jesus' presence, only Jesus' presence, will satisfy my heart, satisfy your heart, our hearts. Look at Luke 18, verses 22 through 27. Jesus is talking here to a rich man. And the rich man has told Jesus all the good things he's done. You know, he hasn't lied, hasn't committed adultery, all these things that he's done. And verse 22, pick up the story. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he, the rich man, became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he gives an illustration to show just how difficult it is. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you may have heard that there was a gate uh, in the walls of Jerusalem called the, the eye of the needle that if you stoop down, you could go through. If you've heard that, I just want to tell you that there, that's not the case. Um, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that if you stoop, you can. Look at what his point is. Verse 26 those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It's impossible apart from a supernatural heart change. I mean, think about a camel. How big is your smallest camel? I mean, it's like, it's big, right? And then a needle. I mean, even if needles were like, I mean, needles today are very small. I have a needle. What if, what if the eye of the needle is about that big? Okay, you got this, got this camel. Okay, we need to start with one of the hoofs, maybe. Let's just we need to start with this and impossible. And Jesus says, exactly. Exactly. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. God can do that. So Jesus is promising this man that if he will sell all of his possessions, he will get the treasure of God's all-satisfying presence in heaven now and forever, and he'll have the joy of following Jesus, the all-satisfying joy of following Jesus now. So why does Jesus call him to take this step? It's because this man is trusting his treasures to satisfy his heart. He's not trusting Jesus to satisfy him. He's trusting his treasure. And so we must trust that Jesus is our all-satisfying treasure to be saved. And so this man has to become, become confronted with his idols, with the, the inferior treasures that he's trusting to satisfy him. He needed to turn from money. Others of us might need to turn from popularity, social media, vacations. These things aren't necessarily bad, but if you are trusting anything other than Jesus Christ as your all-satisfying treasure, there's a massive problem. 
He is dishonored by the fact that you're turning your back on infinite glory, his infinite glory, and you're bowing down to some little you know, social media, popularity, money, whatever it might be. Deeply, it's dishonoring to Christ, and you'll never be satisfied bowing down to that stuff anyway. And a promise that we must trust to be saved is that Jesus' presence, only Jesus' presence can satisfy us. So to be forgiven and welcomed into God's house of salvation, we must trust that Jesus' presence, only Jesus' presence, knowing God and Jesus, are all satisfying, are only all satisfying treasure. That's what we must trust. But there's a problem. Like Jesus already said, it's impossible with us, for us. Whether it's money or popularity or our sin does not want to do that. Our sin wants to stick with the old treasures we used to trust. Even if they've never satisfied us, our sin wants to stick. Our sin does not want to bend the knee before Jesus Christ and love Him, worship Him, honor Him, bow before Him. We'd rather be proud and empty than humble and full. That's the tragedy of sin. And so when we start to move towards trusting Jesus' promise that His presence is all that will satisfy us, and we start to, I want to trust that. Look at, look at who Jesus is. I, our sin's saying, no, it's pulling us back. Don't trust that. Which is why it's impossible. But here's the good news. If we will strive to trust that promise, God will give us that faith. God will change our hearts. If we cry, cry out to God, look at my heart, I'm, I'm loving this, I'm loving that, I Jesus is the treasure, but I'm just so pulled by these things. Help me, change my heart, free me. Give me such a taste of Jesus' glory that I gladly turn away from those things and trust you alone to satisfy me. God will do it every time. God will do it. And he'll continue to do that throughout your life again and again and again. Here's an illustration. Those of you who are from NYU who were at the Focus Retreat heard some of this. Augustine, one of the most significant leaders in the church, 4th century, 400 A.D., he was born in Algeria, uh, North Africa. In his teen years, he trusted sexual sin to satisfy him, not Jesus. His mother was teaching him about Jesus the whole time, not interested. Sexual sin, yes. And he did not want to turn from sexual sin to Jesus. But he was hearing more and more about Jesus. He was becoming convicted that Jesus is true. This is reality. My heart is against Jesus. And he started striving that Jesus' presence would satisfy. I'm sorry, started striving to trust that Jesus' presence would satisfy him so he could enter the narrow door. He cried out to God to free him. He prayed. He opened up the scriptures and he read. And one day, he went into a quiet garden to pray. And while he was there, he noticed a little table, and there was a book on that table. And out of curiosity, he opened up the book to read. It was a Bible. And he opened it right up to Romans chapter 13, and listen to what he read. Paul writes, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh 
to gratify its desires. And then here's what he said happened when he read those verses. He says, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. How many of you are gripping onto fruitless joys? You're afraid to lose them. They're fruitless. Augustine's getting freed here. Then he says he's talking to God. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. Wow. I love that quote. That's, that's Jesus. So as Augustine was striving to enter by the narrow door, praying, reading God's word, God met him. God gave him faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. God gave him faith. God freed him. God gave him such a taste of his presence, his joy, that he gladly turned from sexual sin as his prize, as his treasure, and trusted Jesus Christ as his all-satisfying treasure. That's what Jesus is teaching in Luke 18. The second promise that must be at the heart of saving faith is that Jesus' presence, only Jesus' presence, will satisfy me, will satisfy my heart. So let me ask you, what are you trusting to satisfy you right now, today? If you're trusting the promise that Jesus will satisfy you fully in himself, that only Jesus can satisfy you fully in himself, and as a result, if you're turning from the inferior pleasures that we always get drawn to, then you can know for sure that you have entered the narrow door. You are in God's house of salvation now, and you'll be there forever. You have been saved. So there's two examples. First promise that Jesus' death and only Jesus' death is what can pay for my guilt, and I'm feeling my guilt. And then the second one is that Jesus' presence and only Jesus' presence can satisfy my heart. Those are two promises that are essential to saving faith. And that's why Jesus says, we must strive to enter the narrow door. Not because we have to obey a certain amount in order to earn salvation from God. No. But because we are saved by faith alone. And faith is not easy. It's not easy to trust that Jesus' death will pay for your guilt. We don't want to feel guilt it's not easy to trust that Jesus' presence will satisfy our hearts. We want to cling to those fruitless joys in our pride. But if we will strive to enter the narrow door, crying out to God, change my heart, give me faith, help me, He will. He will change us. He will give us faith, and we will trust His promises, and we will enter the narrow door, and we will be saved. And in the rest of this passage in Luke 13, Jesus gives us five reasons why we should do that. If you haven't already done that, 
you're not already in the house, here's five reasons. And if you are, are already in the house, learn these five reasons so you can encourage other people who aren't yet in the house to strive to enter by the narrow door so they can be in the house with you. How does Jesus motivate us to strive? Five reasons. First, <clears throat> because at some point it will be too late. Verses 24 and 25. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you, are, where you come from. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. See, the door to God's house will be closed either at the point when you die or when Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. At that point, the door to the house of salvation will be closed. And if you have not already entered, it will be too late. Some of you need to hear this. It'll be too late if you've not already entered. But don't say, well, I'm not going to die for a long time. First of all, you don't know that. But even more important than that, why would you put off gaining Jesus, the most satisfying joy in the universe? I mean, think about it like this. If somebody said to you, I want to give you a billion Durham, how many of you are going to say, oh, that's nice. Could we wait until I'm on my deathbed? No one's going to say that. It's ridiculous. You can be completely forgiven now. You can have your heart filled for the first time with all satisfying joy, the joy of knowing Jesus. You can have that now. So, strive to enter the narrow door now. Second reason. It's because we can only be saved by faith in Christ. I think that's the point of verses 26 and 27. Then you will begin to say, remember you're still outside, this is somebody outside the door, let me in, let me in. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Isn't that enough? But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. I don't know who you are. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. It was not enough to eat and drink with Jesus. It was not enough to hear Jesus teaching. It's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to have Christian parents or Christian friends. We are only saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So, strive to enter the narrow door. Strive to trust Jesus and His promises, and you will enter and be part of God's house of salvation now and forever. Third reason. I mentioned this at the very beginning, because heaven and hell are real. Verses 28 through 29. In that place, speaking of hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people, saved people, will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Hell is a real place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. God is absolutely just to punish those who continue to rebel against His Son. It's 
absolutely flawlessly just to do that. He prefers mercy. He loves showing mercy. That's why he sent Jesus. Hell is a real place of judgment. Heaven is a real place of unending joy in God's presence, worshiping Him, beholding Him with all of God's people. That's why we should strive to enter the narrow door. Eternity is real. Heaven and hell are real. Fourth, because some who think they can't be saved, maybe because they think they've sinned too much or they're just too unspiritual, some who think they can't be saved will. And some who think they will be saved because they think they're so spiritual or because they're such moral, upright people, won't. That's the point of verse 30. And behold, some who are last, who think they can't be saved, will be first. Some are last who will be first, and some are first, they think they will be saved for other reasons than faith in Jesus, who will be last. So how can you know for sure that you'll be saved? You can know for sure. Just one way, trusting Jesus. Are you trusting Jesus Christ? Are you trusting His promise that His death and only His death can pay for all the guilt of your sin? Are you trusting Jesus, His promise that His presence, only His presence, will satisfy your heart? Strive for faith in Jesus' promises. Last reason, fifth. I think this is the point of verses 31 to 35. I wrestled with these verses. See if you agree. Because nothing can stop Jesus from saving those who trust Him and punishing those who won't. I mean, that's true, but I think that's the point of these verses. Let's read the verses, 31 to 35. At that very hour, that's why I think this is connected to the previous section, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus, he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way toward Jerusalem, towards the cross. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus knew he was headed toward the cross. He'd set his face to go to Jerusalem because he loves us. He chose the cross. He was going. Nothing was going to stop him. Herod couldn't stop him. Nothing could stop him. He's going to the cross, and on the third day, he's going to rise again. That's what he's saying here. Nothing will stop Jesus. Then look at verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Can you feel the love in Jesus' heart here? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Verse 35, behold, your house is forsaken. God has abandoned you. And I tell you, you will not see me in a saving way. You will not see me in a saving way until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus loved Jerusalem. He loves us. He loved Jerusalem. 
He longed to save Jerusalem and to bless her with his presence, but she was not willing, and so she was abandoned, forsaken by God. And the only way she could escape being forsaken by God would be if she said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which means, this is a messianic prophecy from Psalm 118, it means, blessed be the Messiah. Jesus, you're the Messiah. Blessed be the Messiah. Blessed be Jesus who, whose death pays for the guilt of our sin and whose presence fully satisfies our hearts. Blessed be the Messiah, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And just as Jesus loved Jerusalem, so Jesus loves you. He loves you. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to satisfy you now and forever in His presence. So, See who Jesus is. See him. Behold him. Right now, standing forth from this passage, see Jesus Christ. Trust the promise that Jesus' death and only Jesus' death will pay for all of your guilt. Trust that promise. And trust the promise that Jesus' presence and only Jesus' presence will fully satisfy your heart. And you will know that you've entered the narrow door you will know that you are in God's house of salvation now and forever. You will know that you have been saved. 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 You'll know that. Let's stand together. I want to pray. Father, I pray that you would touch those hearts who are not yet trusting your son's death is the only way they can be forgiven for their guilt, who are not yet trusting that your son's presence is their only all-satisfying treasure. I pray, Lord, that you would grip them with conviction that they're not in the house of salvation and that you want to save them, you want to help them, you will help them as they strive, as they seek you, as they cry out, as they put their trust in Jesus. Lord, save people right here, right now, today do that, we ask. And Lord, for those of us who are trusting Christ, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. Your death, you set your face to go to Jerusalem to pay for our sins. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. We worship you. And thank you. Your glory, God's glory shining through you, your presence is our all-satisfying treasure. We want to, in a fresh way, turn from whatever else we've been trusting to satisfy us and trust you alone to satisfy us. In Jesus' name, amen.